Our scripture reading this morning will be from Isaiah, Isaiah 40, verses 28 through 31. It's Isaiah 40, verses 28 through 31. Do you not know, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youth grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. good to have the alphabet reunited again this morning. It's, it's wonderful to see so many pews filled and to have as, as many people as we can back with us. I know there's still many of you still home uh, watching and live stream and we look forward to the time when you can be back together with us in the future when you're comfortable. We are also mindful of the fact that when there are more of us together in the auditorium that that means because of the every other pew approach that we're taking for distancing purposes, it means that uh, sometimes it can be a little hard to find a seat. And so in future weeks, we'd ask that if you think about it as you're coming in, either try to make your way towards the front if you're early or try to scoot in a little bit if if you're comfortable with it so that those that are coming in a little bit later will have uh, an easier time of finding a seat. We had some people staying at the back looking for a place to sit this morning, and that's great. That's great that we have as many people as we do, uh, and it's great that we have as many people back together again this morning as, as we can. If you're visiting with us or you weren't uh, able to tune in or be with us last week, we began a program for the rest of 2020 called Reading in Sync. Reading in Sync. And so what we're doing each week, and this week's uh, little brochure is a different color from last week, so you'll know it's a, each week it'll be a, a rotation of colors. What we're doing each week is we're, we're picking up this little sheet, and there are five chapters to read through the week, one each day. And what we're hoping to accomplish with this program is as a church body that we may not be able to be together as often as we normally are, we're able to do something together in a sense, that we're reading together in sync, that we're studying God's Word together. I I noticed a couple of you posted on the Facebook group uh, through the week that uh, these are some observations that I saw, something I read, or something that was important to me. I encourage you to continue to do that. Some of the thoughts this morning uh, for our lesson, really all of them are, are drawn from each chapter. So that's the plan for this morning. We're not going to do that every single week, that we're going to draw a point from each particular chapter, but that's the plan this morning. And secondly, something else we're not going to do every week, but that we'll do this morning, is I want us actually to see, I can't can't have the the screen say, our God, he is alive. And for us, I know in my mind that tune's going through my mind already. So let's, let's stand and sing this song together. Sorry, I know you already got your Bibles out and and parents got your coloring sheets and crayons out, but let's stand and sing this together.
The nice thing about not having songbooks is that I can tell you that song number is 728B, because that's the way I grew up with it. <laughs> our God, He is alive. The reason that's our title for this particular sermon is because that is the theme for our readings this, this week, or this past week. And as we make our way through each consideration from each chapter, we're going to be pointing back to that concept, that idea of our God, He is alive. And so this morning, as we first consider 1 Kings chapter number 18, I want us to think about the fact that our God, He is alive, alive enough to trust Him, no matter the circumstances of life. He's alive enough to trust Him, no matter the circumstances of life. Consider with me, one of the nice things about everybody shooting, most likely having read through the week, is that we don't have to go through maybe and read as many of the verses because we're aware or familiar with the, the accounts. But, but just in summary, you'll recall that 1 Kings chapter 18 is the account in which Elijah faces off with the 450 prophets of Baal, in which they have that contest on Mount Carmel, and Elijah prays to God, and God sends down that fire from heaven and consumes the, the, the altar and the, that which was on it and, and dries up all of, all of the water that was poured upon it. And that's the... The, the thrust of the chapter, but I want us to consider a few things from 1 Kings chapter 18 that are, that are interesting. First, I want us to consider the fact that Elijah took a great risk to even set up this challenge, to even go in to or onto Mount Carmel against these 450 prophets of Baal. And the reason we say that, if we think about it from 1 Kings chapter 18, is because Ahab and Jezebel had been hunting for Elijah at this point. If you recall back in chapter 17, Elijah had told Ahab that God would not allow rain to come upon the face of the earth until the Lord commanded it to come again. And so here's Elijah that comes onto the scene rather suddenly, and he's telling Ahab God's not going to allow it to rain, and it's a good span of time before Elijah is found again. And no doubt Ahab and Jezebel are wanting to find this Ahab, find this Elijah because He's the one that, in their minds, that is thinking that has caused this great drought or famine. And to the point that, in chapter 18 and verse number 14, Obadiah, as he comes into contact with Elijah, believes that if he were to go back and tell Ahab that he had seen Elijah and didn't bring Elijah to him, that Ahab would have had him killed if Elijah didn't actually show up where he was supposed to be when they were communicating about where they're going to meet up. And so think about the fact that just... The idea of, the, of Elijah facing up against or facing off against 450 prophets of Baal was certainly something that put Elijah's life at risk. Elijah's life was at risk. But notice the confidence that Elijah shows up to this showdown with. He, he shows up to the showdown with quite a bit of confidence. Notice verse number 21 of chapter 18. Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. Elijah comes onto the scene and is very sure and confident about this particular statement. He says, Make up your minds, more or less. If God is God, then follow him. If Baal is God, then follow him. In other words, I've made my mind up. My God of, is the God of heaven. Elijah shows up with this confidence of, of the fact that he is, oh, we're going too far forwards here. He shows up to this particular showdown with the confidence knowing that his mind was made up. 
But in verse number 22, he realizes that he's in the minority. Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Elijah has made up his mind, even though he's in the minority, but he's not giving in. In verse 27, Elijah is so sure and confident in his God that his God is alive that he begins to boast, in a sense, to, to mock the prophets of Baal. Notice what he says in verse 27. So it was at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is meditating, or he is busy, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they cried aloud and cut themselves, as was their custom with knives and lances, until the blood gushed out on them. Think about this. Elijah comes onto the scene, one man versus 450 others. Put yourself in Elijah's shoes. Unless you trust in God and you know that this particular contest is going to result in victory on your side of the, of the equation, you're probably not going to say things as confidently as Elijah was here. Call upon your God. Maybe he's sleeping. Maybe he's on a journey. But Elijah's confident. He's confident in the fact that God is alive, alive enough to trust him even in this particular circumstance. Think about this from verses 33 through 35. Realize, remember, what's taking place in the land at this time? A great famine, a great drought because it hadn't rained. Notice what Elijah does. Verse 33, he commands that four water pots be filled with water and that they be poured on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. Then he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. He said, do it a third time. And they, do, they did it a third time. So the water ran all over the, around the altar and he also filled the trench with water. It was pretty remarkable, confident to think he's calling for God to consume this particular altar and he pours on four water pots of water three different times. That's pretty confident in and of itself. But then there's another layer of confidence here. The fact that there's been a drought for so many years, that water is a precious commodity. That water is something that is to be valued and to be held on to tightly. And here's Elijah just pouring it all over pouring it all over that altar. And yet he confidently trusted in God. And then we remember the, the result of this contest that, that the, the altar is consumed by the fire from heaven from God. Baal's prophets couldn't accomplish this. But then afterwards, it still hasn't rained up to this point. So he goes up onto the top of Mount Carmel, Elijah does, and he kneels down and he begins to put his face to the ground and he sends his servant to the top of the mountain to look out towards the sea. Mount Carmel's kind of on the coastline. He's looking out over the Mediterranean Sea. And his prophet, and, and the servant of the prophet Elijah comes to him and says, I don't see anything. And Elijah sends him back again. He says, look for a cloud to come. And he comes back again a second time, and Elijah sends him back again. He says, go back and look. Seven times Elijah sends his servant back confidently trusting in his God that God would eventually send rain. How is Elijah so confident? How is Elijah someone who trusts in God even in the midst of a drought, even in the midst of a famine, even in the midst of being faced up against 450 prophets of Baal? Consider chapter number 17. Consider Elijah's preparation. We said a moment ago that in chapter 17, Elijah comes onto the scene rather quickly. In verses 1 through 7, God teaches Elijah to rely upon him. 
How is it that Elijah is able to be so confident in chapter number 18 and facing off against the prophets of Baal? Well, he's learned some things in chapter 17 from God. God teaches him to rely upon him. He says in verse number one that there's this drought that's coming. There's a promise of a drought. Verses two through three, God commands Elijah to depart, to depart and go to the brook Kidron. And there in verse number four, there's something new to depend on. There's something new to depend on. We have a a drought that's promised. We have this command to depart and then something new to depend on. Remember what it was? Ravens would be bringing him food. Take some trust and confidence in a God to believe that God's going to send some ravens with some food. But God takes care of him, and those ravens bring him food. God delivered on those promises in verses 5 through 7. But then in verses 8 through 16, we see that God teaches Elijah to help others rely upon God, upon him. Verses 8 through 16, we have the account of the widow of Zarephath in which Elijah goes to her home and and she's got just a little bit of flour left, a little bit of, uh, of material left to be able to prepare some bread. And then she says, after we eat this, my son and I, we're gonna die. But Elijah teaches this widow that if God has promised something, and he had, that he would not allow that vessel to run out until Uh, the famine, the the drought was over, this lady learned to trust, just like Elijah had learned to trust in God. And so Elijah's teaching others how to rely upon God. But then we have the account in which, at the end of the chapter of chapter 17, the son of this widow, the son of the widow of Zarephath, passes away. Now it's one thing, to rely upon and trust in God in a situation in which you're waiting for some birds to bring you some food. It's another thing to to rely upon God that a particular vessel of material to make some bread is not going to run out. It's an entirely different thing to rely and trust upon upon God in a situation in which a loved one has passed away. And so in this scenario, God teaches Elijah to continually trust in him to continually rely upon him. And in so doing, he also teaches this widow to continually rely upon God. Even when the odds didn't seem to be in their favor, Elijah trusts and relies upon God. And the widow, by default, also has to trust and rely upon God. And this son, her son, her loved one, is brought back to life. And notice what she says at the end of verse 24. The woman said to Elijah, Now by this I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is the truth. Trusting in the truth. God, our God, he is alive. Enough to trust him no matter the circumstances of life. But secondly, this morning from Psalm chapter 19, I want us to consider that our God, he is alive no matter if you can see him or not. No matter if you can see him or not, turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 19, our second reading for the week. Some people would say, oh, you believe in God? Well, show him to me. Reveal, uh, God, reveal yourself to me. If, If you really are alive, some might say, reveal yourself to me. 
Psalm 19 is a chapter in which we find what some have coined as God's resume. God puts himself out there in these ways to say, here I am. Consider this, that God reveals himself and he can be seen in, verses 1 through 6, his creation. He can be seen in his creation. We don't have to go looking for it because the heavens declare it. They are declaring it and they're heralding it. They're saying, look, here, here's God and what I am. The heavens are declaring that. But not only the heavens, but also the firmament, the expanse or the sky clearly shows it, the psalmist says at the end of verse 1. But then in verse 2, in fact, every new day and every new night reveals something new to us that we didn't know before. It reveals something new to us that we didn't know before. Have you thought about that? That in the year 15 AD, that the creation around the human, uh, mankind was revealing God to them. And then fast forward all the way to the year 2020, and we can see a microscopic little thing known as SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19 or coronavirus, however you want to term it. And we can use a, a, a microscope to look down at those small, infinitesimally small little things. And we can look into our body and look at our DNA and look at our chromosomes and look at all these different things. And we have to say, after looking at those things, design demands a designer. In fact, it's so clear that it doesn't matter where you are from or what language you speak, you can understand these declarations. Notice verse number three. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. There's some variation in translation depending on what version you're, we're using. But this idea is this, that no matter what language you speak, it doesn't matter because the, the heavens and the earth and day into day and night into night reveals knowledge. Even if you don't speak the same language as somebody else, you can see it. You understand it. It's visible to you. But not only is God seen in his creation, but it's secondly also seen in his revelation. In his revelation, that is, the word of God. In verses 7 through 11, we have the law of the Lord is perfect. The Bible, the word of God, is the most perfect document. Not only in its accuracy historically, but also in its teachings from an ethical standpoint. It's perfect. The Bible, you want to talk about seeing God in something powerful? The Bible changes stubborn people. It changes stubborn people. Look at verse number seven at the end of that verse. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. And then back again at the beginning of verse number seven, it converts the soul. It changes people. The Bible makes simple-minded people wise. The Bible is straightforward. That is, the statutes are right. They're pure. They're straight. They're straightforward. There's no surprises around the corner. The Bible does more for a man than the finest of gold or the sweetest of honeycomb, as the psalmist continues. Where else could this document have come from other than from God? Like the creation, the revelation also declares him. But in the last section of Psalm 19, we see that God can be seen also in the story of redemption. He can be seen in his creation, in his revelation, and in the story of redemption. 
Some have approached the apologetics uh, study in this way, that to believe in God or to deny his existence takes a great amount of faith. That is, when you think about the Christian faith, you need to realize the faith it takes to doubt it because of so much evidence that is presented to us. The faith it takes to doubt it, but secondly, also consider the problems you have without it. That is, when you don't have God, when you don't have Jesus, think about the anarchy that can ensue in the world around us. We think about the, stand, the lack of a standard that we would, would not have, the, the standard that wouldn't be there to help to guide us in this life. But also consider this third principle, this third approach to apologetics. You have the first one we said was the, the faith it takes to doubt it, the second, the problems you have without it, the third, the beauty you see within it. The beauty you see within it. And the fact that our God, though he is righteous and just and has to punish wrongdoing, loved us enough to send his son to redeem us. The very concept of redemption, the very concept of forgiveness, as is laid out in verses 12 through 14, is a concept that should blow our minds, is a concept that should reveal to us that our God is alive. So our God, he is alive no matter if you can see him with your physical eyes or not. And number three, our God, he is alive no matter who is in power or not. No matter who is in power or not. Daniel chapter five, our third reading for the week. Think about Daniel's sermon after he comes before Belshazzar, the king, and he's brought in to uh, interpret the writing upon the wall. This was Daniel's sermon in a nutshell. Daniel's sermon said this, your father or your ancestor Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, his position was God-given. His position was God-given. Notice verse 18. O king, the most high God, gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, a kingdom and majesty, glory and honor. But not only was his position God-given, but also his power was God-given. Notice verse 19. And because of the majesty that he gave him, that being God, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up. And whomever he wished, he put down. His position and his power were both God-given. But Daniel's sermon continues. It doesn't end there. Nebuchadnezzar's pride was the downfall of his kingdom. Notice verse 20. But when his, Nebuchadnezzar's heart, was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne and they took his glory from him. Then he was driven, verse number 21, from the sons of men. His heart was made like the beasts and his dwelling was like the wild donkeys. They fed him with grass like oxen and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdoms of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. Nebuchadnezzar's pride was the downfall of his kingdom. And so the conclusion of Daniel's sermon to Belshazzar was this. Belshazzar, your punishment is also your dethroning. It's your dethroning. And in verses 22 through 28, Daniel reveals to Belshazzar the interpretation of the writing on the wall. A couple of points of application for us from this particular text. Two takeaways. Number one, all of the empires 
of the world will collapse. So follow God. All of the empires of the world will collapse. So follow God. Think about it. The Egyptian empire, the Babylonian empire, the Persian empire, the Byzantine empire, the Roman empire, the Ottoman empire, the British empire, the German empire, the Japanese empire. All of these empires have come to their end. And should the Lord not return first? What do you think is eventually most likely going to happen to what some have coined the U.S. empire? But you know who has endured despite the rising and falling of every single empire? God's people. So follow God. Doesn't mean that they didn't endure persecution. It doesn't mean that they weren't put to the sword and, and put in a coliseum with lions. But they endured eternally because they followed and trusted in God. Second takeaway, not only should we follow God, but we really need to chew on the last phrase of verse 21. Let's read it again. Nebuchadnezzar was doing all these things in the field like an animal until he knew that the most high God rules in the kingdoms of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. I'm not saying to not get out and vote. What I am saying is that we probably need to pump the brakes a little bit on how worked up we get over what's coming in a couple of months. In fact, it may just do some of us good to be driven to the fields, acting like a wild animal until we come to this realization just like Nebuchadnezzar was and did. We really need to chew on that last phrase of verse 21. Number four, our God, he is alive, no matter if he is known or not. No matter if he is known or not. In Acts chapter 17, we have Paul coming to Athens, and he comes ac across this particular inscription among a variety of other inscriptions and, and, and idols that were set up. And on this inscription, it said, to the unknown God. And so Paul sets out to declare to the Athenians and the Areopagus who this unknown God was. He says, him I declare unto you. I want us to make some observations from Acts chapter number 17. Acts chapter number 17, Paul reveals some things to us and, and we would say, well, most everybody today knows about the God of the Bible. And so is God really unknown? Well, the first category that might come to your mind would be that God is unknown to the evolutionist. The God is unknown to the evolutionists because in verse 24 and 25, Paul says, God made the world and everything in it since he is Lord of heaven and earth. He does not dwell in temples made with hands. He made everything in it. He's unknown to the evolutionists because though some evolutionists may allow for the possibility of a first cause, their attribution of the grand design of the universe and everything around it and in it is to a bunch of random mutations and this reveals that they truly don't know the true God of heaven because they don't give him the credit. But consider this also. Naturally, this would be our first category of people that in our society today we would think that doesn't know God. But consider the list as we continue through Paul's sermon. God is secondly unknown to the abortionist. Notice verse number 25. 
nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needs anything, since he, that is God, gives to all life, breath, and all things. The abortionist does not truly know God because they do not fully value what he has created and that God has given it life. Not only that, they assert that they have the right or the ability to decide what life does and does not have value. And while we're here, there have progressively been more and more people of the Christian faith that have adopted the mentality that abortion is acceptable. But let it unequivocally be said and known that Christianity and abortion are incompatible. They do not unite. They cannot be joined together. They're incompatible for a variety of reasons, but from our text this morning, realize that God is the giver of life. And therefore, innocent life cannot be taken because it is sacred. God is unknown to the abortionist because God is the one that gives life. And he doesn't know that. If we consider also, we say, well, I'm not an evolutionist. I'm not an abortionist. Consider as we continue making our way through this text that things might start to hit home a little bit more, maybe come a little bit closer to us, step on our toes a little bit more. God is unknown to the racist. Verse number 26. He has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. A racist truly doesn't know God. They don't know God because while they may claim to know him, there's, there's some racists out there that claim to be Christians, that claim to love and know God, but though while they claim to know him and love him, they don't really know him because they've ignored the fact that God made of one blood all nations, and at the same time, he has also brought all nations back together with one blood, the blood of Jesus. And you know what? Through that one blood, the blood of Christ, all the nations of the earth are brought back together in the church. Such a beautiful picture. And it's a picture of the church here in Katy. And we love that about this congregation. Continuing on, verse number 27, God is unknown not only to the evolutionist, the abortionist, the racist, but also to the Calvinist. A Calvinist would teach that God has predestined only a specific group of people to be saved. And that no matter how hard you try or no matter how much you want to be saved, you're not going to be saved because there's only a specific elect group that can be part of God's redeemed people. The Calvinist doesn't know God because the God that he worships is a God that in essence has outright determined that some people will never be saved. Notice, however, what Paul says in verse 27. So that they, that is the people of all the earth, should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. Syndicates and implies to us that our free will allows for us to seek after God and to find him if we but just look for him, because he's not far from each one of us. So God is unknown to the Calvinist. Okay, well, I'm not an evolutionist or an abortionist or a racist. I'm not even a Calvinist. But what about verses 28? And 29, God is unknown to the materialistic. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of you of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Say, well, 
you know, Paul was talking to the Athenians and they had all these different altars and, and, and idols that were built up to various gods that were false gods. And that's what Paul's talking about. It certainly is in the specific context here. But at large, as we think about materialism in our world today, do we not also sometimes worship those things that are of a material nature? We may not bow down before them and pray to them, but they sure do occupy the majority of our time, even the time that should be reserved for our God. So God is unknown to the materialistic. Could that be said about you or me? In which we spend the majority of our time devoting ourselves to the things of a material nature instead of a spiritual nature. So God is unknown to the materialistic, but finally God is unknown to the rebellious in verse 30. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Commands all men everywhere to repent. Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of action. Maybe you're not an evolutionist or a racist. Maybe you're not an abortionist. But if you're not changing your mind and bending your mind to the will of God, and that particular change of mind doesn't lead to a change in action, you don't truly know God. Our God, he is alive, even if he is known, no matter if he is known or not. But finally this morning, our God, he is alive, no matter if he is rejected or accepted. In line, in, in, in the same vein of what we just talked about from verse 30 of Acts chapter number 17, turn over to Romans chapter 1 as we close. In Romans chapter number 1, there's a very interesting set of statements. Beginning in verse number 20, Paul says this, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So there's three categories of people that we've thought about this morning. The category that trusts and relies upon God no matter the circumstances of life. The category that doesn't know God because their actions and their attitudes and the way that they live their life claim that they don't know him. Then there's this third category of people that in a sense they do know God, they have known him, but they have decided in their own minds that their life is not going to be about this God. This life, their life is not going to be about their Lord, and instead they're going to be individuals that become futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts will become darkened. Notice three times a particular phrase is used about these people. Three times it is said that God gave them up or God gave them over. He gave them up to impurity, Verse 24, he gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 26, he gave them over to a debased mind. Verse 28. And so you might say, well, what does this have to do with our God, he is alive? What does this have to do with our God, he is alive, no matter if he's rejected or accepted? Consider this, that even when God is rejected, God is still in control and God is still alive because he has the final action in this life. You know, each person has their own free will and has their own ability to choose, but until God gives someone over, it's, God is still trying 
to help that individual to come to a realization of the truth, not through some miraculous uh, tug of the heart, but through the Word or through His people that they might show others the, the, to, the, to help them come to the knowledge of the truth. And God is desiring that those people would be helped. But at some point, God gives them over, God gives them up because they have made themselves to be people that have become futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts have become darkened. And so while though it may seem that that person has that choice, that ability, the last action is God giving them up. God giving them over to those things. And he has the final action. But even more so than that, consider the last verse. That God has the final action in the life, not only in this life, but in the life thereafter. Notice verse 32. Who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things, that big long list in the previous verses of sins, those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only those that do them, but also those that approve of those that practice them. God has the final say in the life thereafter because those individuals that have decided to live that way, God has given them up in this life and he will punish them with death in the next. Not a physical death, but a spiritual death. A death that is relegated to an eternal punishment in hell. And so as we conclude, and say, well, we started off with a high note. Our God, he is alive. But you know, we're finishing with kind of a solemn, somber note. Sometimes that's okay. Sometimes that's needed. Because you need to realize if you're in error, if you're a sinner that's no longer in step with God or has never been in step with God, you as an individual are separated from him and our God, he is alive in this life and eternity. And that in eternity, there's a possibility and a likelihood for, and a certainty for all those that are sinners to be punished. So I'd ask this morning, are you a Christian? Our God, He is alive, is an encouragement for the Christian. But for the one that is a non-Christian, for the one that is a sinner, our God, He is alive, is a fearful statement. We encourage you to make your life right with God this morning. If you're not a Christian, study the Word. Allow us to study with you. Submit to Him in baptism and have your sins washed away. But if you are a Christian and you've decided to start falling away, and you've decided to start pursuing after the passions of this life, and maybe you become futile in your thinking and following after the, the lust of the flesh, we want you to make those things right this morning. If there's anything we can do for you, we encourage that you come as together we stand and as we sing.